0: Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Jack Bach, and I'm happy to be here with you to present the second in our series of 10 study lessons as we cover the book of Revelation here at the Village Church this fall. We are studying today Revelation 1, verses 4 through 20, and I'm glad you're with us. This section of Revelation combines traditional opening language that might have been written in formal or even perhaps informal letters during the time of John. It combines those kinds of statements with other statements of faith and worship that are a signal of what is to come in the body or in the rest of the letter. John is writing, he tells us, because Jesus is speaking, to seven churches in Asia, actual congregations in actual cities that exist now in what you and I know as modern Western Turkey. John begins with words that I often begin with, grace and peace. Grace and peace are two central terms of New Testament faith. Grace speaks about God's unmerited favor toward us, God's love. Peace talks about what God wants for us, the completion and wholeness and well-being of all of creation, especially that part of creation that is humanity. Grace and peace have been accomplished through God's gift of Jesus Christ to all of us, and it is that grace and peace that John will be talking about through the rest of the book, Grace and Peace That Come from Christ. John refers to the God who is and was and is to come, a poetic way of describing the eternal God. This message of revelation comes to us from the God who is from the beginning, the God who is at the end, the God who is in all things. John refers to seven spirits in verse 4. That number seven in the Bible refers to something complete, something that is whole, just like the seven days of creation. Seven expresses the fact that it is the whole God who is speaking to us. There are seven spirits that are with God, and we're not exactly sure what John means by that. I think that what John means is that God, in his complete spiritual wholeness, was expressing himself to God. Jesus is referred to here as the one who is a faithful witness in verse 5, a faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's really quite an astonishing and profound statement about someone who had been killed on a cross, but someone who nevertheless now is believed to be by Christians, the very Son of God, the one who is resurrected the one who is the king of all the kings. This is a very, very important affirmation for John to make at the beginning of this letter because he's saying it to other people who are being called to witness about their faith in Jesus Christ, to testify to what they believe, people who will perhaps die because of what they believe and because they stand up for it, people who are doing battle, mortal battle, spiritually speaking, with the kings of the earth. Christians did not fight physically against the empire. They did not have any option to do that. But in their standing up for their faith in Jesus, they were fighting against the powers of the earth, the kings of the earth. And so we see in these first few verses that Jesus is the one who loves and frees his people by his own martyrdom he calls these people a people of a, a, a people of priests a, a kingdom of priests that is the the inner and the hidden reality of who Christians actually are now the Christians themselves in the first century to whom john is writing are anything but kings like we would experience that today they had very little wealth they had absolutely no power but they are given to understand that in god's way of things they are kings, they are priests, they are part of God's kingdom itself. Then in verse 7, we have a beautiful word picture of, of who Jesus is. And remember last week, I talked about the fact that so much of what Revelation is, is a, is a beautiful picture, a kaleidoscopic parade of images that are all meant to say something about Jesus and God and where all of history is going. Jesus is coming down from the heavens. Everyone is going to see him coming, everyone including his enemies. All the tribes, all the nations will have to deal with Jesus. They will have to reckon with him when he returns. He is called the Alpha and the Omega. You know that those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. They signify that God and Christ are eternal. They are from the very beginning and from the very end. And now, those who live in the temporal world, the world of time, will have to deal with him. That's what we see in the first few verses as we go on with verse 9 through 16. We see a vision of Jesus as the transcendent and victorious Christ. Now, remember, this Jesus was considered to be, by the rest of the world, if they even knew anything about him, he was considered to be merely a common criminal executed by the Roman government. Christians have a very, very different view of who this Jesus is, and that's what makes them willing to stand up before the power of the Roman Empire and the ridicule and persecution of their friends and say, no, Jesus is someone else. In fact, he is the Lord and Master. With verse 9, we have the beginning of what you and I would consider to be the body of the letter. The introduction is now over with, we know who we're hearing from, we know what he's going to talk about, and now we begin to hear what the message is. John tells us that he is a fellow believer. He is a, a Christian writing to other Christians. He himself has been persecuted. We don't know how, we don't know when, but he refers to the fact that he has suffered for his own testimony. He shares with other believers a place in God's kingdom, and therefore now he is called, just as they are called, to patient endurance. He's on the island of Patmos. Patmos is an island in the Aegean Sea between Turkey and Greece. It was an island where the Roman Empire would take people that they would think of as undesirable people, troublemakers, perhaps political enemies, perhaps criminals. They would exile them to this little island, and in that way they would be finished with them. John has been exiled there because he has preached, he has taught, he has witnessed about Jesus. He says he has shared the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He is there precisely because of what he believes about Jesus. As the risen Lord. John was at worship on Sunday morning. He calls it the Lord's Day. Well, that's what Christians began to call Sunday morning was the Lord's Day, and and sometimes we still do call it that. He experienced a vision of Jesus, a vision that we can't describe exactly. We can't say if John saw pictures uh, on a wall in front of him or if they were visions that came to him in his mind, but he has a vision. And in that vision, John hears what he says was a voice like a trumpet. Now, I want you to pay attention for a moment to to that word, like. Remember that John is trying to describe something that really cannot be described directly. He's trying to describe the nature of the transcendent God. He's trying to describe what it means to have an encounter with an eternal being. And he's trying to explain to us how things will go in the world, how things are in the world, in a way that has never been seen before. And so when he says, I heard a voice like a trumpet, it was not a trumpet that he heard. But the best way he can describe it is it's like a trumpet. The voice says, write these things in a book. That emphasizes the importance of what John is going to hear. Books were extremely rare, difficult to produce, very expensive. To write something in a book meant it was some of the most important stuff you could ever say. Write it in a book. There's a message then that's going to be written. A message to the seven churches. Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Laodicea and the others. The message is not only, though, for those seven churches. Remember that number seven is the whole and complete number. This is a message for all the churches, for all the people who now believe in and follow Jesus. There are seven golden lampstands there. They represent, perhaps, the seven churches. Jesus is in the middle of those lampstands, meaning that Jesus is present with his people, present with his church. Of course, Jesus has already been executed on the cross and resurrected from the grave, and he has left his churches with his spirit, but it is him who is with his churches. John sees someone like the Son of Man, a human being. That's what Son of Man actually means. A human being, as Jesus was a human being, but he's more than that, much more than that. He's wearing a robe, that is the garment of a priest. He's wearing a golden sash, that's the garment of royalty. He's a royal priest. He has white hair, In the Old Testament, white hair referred to to God. God was seen as one who had this amazingly white, blazing hair. He has bronze feet and a voice like waters. If you go back to the Old Testament book of Daniel, you will see God described in that way. And remember I said last week that Revelation contains at least 500 references to the Old Testament. The vision that John had was not so much a brand new thing as it was a compilation of the visions of the ancient people of Israel. He has seven stars in his hand. Stars were a representation of several things in the world that John lived in. They were a representation of a very very powerful pagan religion, the religion of Mithras, They also were used in the worship of the Roman emperor. Remember, in this time in Rome's history, the emperors were saying to the people that they were gods, actually, and that's where the problem came in with the Christians, because they could not believe that the Caesar was God. At any rate, the seven stars, if you heard about them in John's age, your mind would immediately go to the ancient religion of Mithras or the worship of the Roman emperor. But those stars are in the right hand of Jesus. The right hand is the hand of power. The right hand represents control. Jesus controls. Jesus is in charge of All things, including someone who pretends to be a king and someone who pretends to be divine, like the emperor. Some religion that pretends to teach the truth, but in fact is not. There is a two-edged sword coming from his mouth. That's an image from Isaiah. The two-edged sword represents the word of God. It is with our tongue that we speak, It is by God's speaking that he created the heavens and the earth, speaking everything into existence. Now this image of Jesus with the priestly garments and the divine and kingly garments, controlling the powers of the earth, speaking with the power of God, that gives us a, a beautiful picture. Think of a painting, perhaps, of this transcendent risen Christ. This is somebody that we know we have to take very seriously. Somebody who has incredible power. Somebody who, if you are a Christian, you believe to be the actual Lord and ruler of the whole universe, not the Roman emperor, not any of the many other gods that were worshipped in John's day. This was an important image that that spoke of of truth and power and strength and encouragement to people who were suffering for their faith, people being persecuted, people who perhaps would have to die if they were going to witness and tell the truth about what they believed. In verse uh, 9b, we see that Jesus is the the, the one who... No, wait a minute. I got mixed up in in my notes. Jesus has a shining face. Let's go there. Verse 16, Jesus has a shining face. That's a common way of describing God, God of indescribable light. All throughout the New Testament, we see, and the Old Testament, we see that that God is described as light. This is an amazing vision of Jesus. Now, Jesus has a message for his church. We see that now in verses 17 through 20. John says that when he had a vision of this amazing Jesus, the triumphant and risen Christ, the Messiah of God, he fell down as if he were dead before him. And that's a common response when people meet the creator of the universe in such an overt and obvious kind of way. This Jesus takes his right hand, remember the hand of power, he puts it on his shoulder and he says, Don't be afraid don't be afraid. All throughout the witness of the Bible, Old Testament and New, when God's angels show up, when God himself shows up, oftentimes their first message is, don't be afraid. Think of what it would be like for you to encounter the very power, the creator, the the ground of our being, the one who made everything, you'd be amazed, you'd be awed, you might be a little bit afraid even, wondering why he's come to you. But but his message is, don't be afraid. Instead, be filled with courage. The one who encounters John, remember John didn't ask for this vision. The one who came to John is God's Christ, the one who was killed but is now resurrected and forever the master of even death and hell. John is going to get a glimpse now into God's plan from the beginning, God's plan to redeem his whole creation, a plan that those who are in the church already know about, that they are standing up for and witnessing to, to people who don't believe it. Then we have more images of stars and angels, lampstands and churches, Jesus controls the destiny of all of these things. Now, this is a brief introduction into the kinds of images, the kind of language, the kind of thought patterns that we're going to see through the rest of Revelation. It can be very confusing, I'll admit. These are not images that we often use in the modern day, but it's important that we try to understand what they say, what they mean, and especially what they would say to people who are hearing these words. Remember, Revelation was meant to be read to a church, read to a group of people assembled who were suffering under the persecution and the threat of martyrdom. And they are now hearing from someone who has seen God, someone to whom Jesus has directly spoken, not the pathetic and poor figure of Jesus hanging on a cross. But Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, who now lives in eternal glory, seated at the right hand of God the Father, we might say. It is that Jesus who is speaking, who is saying something to his church. Jesus has showed up in John's life. He's no longer the convicted and executed criminal. He is the one who has come to pronounce and to reaffirm his presence with his people, his presence with the church. He holds all the power. We might say in today's world, he holds all the marbles. He has more power than even the most powerful of the earth, the Roman emperor, the Roman empire. Some of you have studied Revelation with me before, and you know my two-word summary of what Revelation really is all about. All of those images and pictures and fantastic ways of speaking tells us that God wins, even though it seems like the Roman Empire is controlling everything, and at that time, in the physical world, indeed they were, but that's not the deepest reality. The most important truth, the deepest reality for those believers and for the whole world is that God is remaking the earth, and we are called to stand strong, to stand firm, full of courage and confidence, not in ourselves, but in the God who wins. Therefore, the message of Revelation will be to those who are struggling, those who are suffering, hold fast, hold firm. That's a great message for you and me to hold on to today. I look forward to seeing you the next time. God bless.